Last time, we explored the divine judgment of decreation, the reversal of the created order, uncreated on account of man's wicked moral degeneration. A wicked degeneration of worshiping the creature, man, beast, bird, fish, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Allah, the apostles remark in Romans 1.25. This evening, we want to look at verses 4 to 6. And let's begin by reading the verses. I'll ask you to read one verse. And Randy, can I begin with you? Zephaniah 1, verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priest. Is that the end of your version? Verse 4. That's verse 4. That's verse 4. Okay. It's not my version. Is that the NIV? RSV. It's the RSV. Okay. Verse 5. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. And those who bow down on the housetops to the hosts of heaven, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. And Bob, verse 6, please. Those who turn back from following the Lord, and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Thanks very much. <clears throat> Now, with that inferior reading of verse 4, um, <clears throat> that verse, the last phrase of which, the names of the idolatrous priests, should be followed by another phrase that reads something like, along with the priest. It is a difficult Hebrew construction, and we'll pay attention to it when we come to that detail. But there are actually two Hebrew words there, and they both need to be translated. And Randy's version collapsed them into one. Well, that's got a note down there that says, I dollars priest with the priest names. Okay, uh, it's better to read the note in that case, because the uh, Hebrew is quite explicit. All right, now... Let's consider the pattern here in these three verses. The pattern of verses 4 to 6 in relation to the pattern of verses 2 to 3. As you noticed last week, if you recall, we pointed out that verses 2 to 3 are looking how. How would you express the perspective there? In verses 2 to 3. Global. Global or universal. Very good. So in verses 4 to 6, what are we dealing with? Is this a universal perspective? Marge? Oh, just says Judah and Jerusalem. So it's a particular perspective, particularly Judah and Jerusalem. So we've moved in verses 2 to 3 from the universal to the particular, from the comprehensive to the selective. Uh, 
from the cosmic to the nationalistic. So <clears throat> Zephaniah is bringing down his focus. <clears throat> that is, he's telescoping downwards from all creation and the face of all the earth <clears throat> to Judah and Jerusalem in particular and specifically. So these verses, <clears throat> 4, 5, and 6, are going to be focused upon people of God in Judah and Jerusalem. All right, now what's the particular sin that he has in mind in these three verses? Terry? Put a label on this sin. Idolatry. idolatry. <clears throat> we talked about idolatry last week. Uh, here it is uh, actually very specific. And one we want to notice about his construction here is that he uses a series of duplicates. So let's scan the verses, and let's begin with verse 4, and point out the duplicates as you notice them. Let's take verse 4 first. Let's take the verses in order. Against. Against. Judah, and against Jerusalem. So he uses the duplicate word against. What else do you find in verse 4? Now, Randy won't be able to find it in his version. Yes, we have priests and priests. That's correct. Randy has it in the, in the footnote. But the New American Standard, and uh, any of you looking at the NIV, does the NIV have priests duplicated in that line? Very good. Okay. That is the, the text of the Hebrew. So uh, we have two duplicates in verse 4. What about verse 5? What duplicates do you see in verse 5? Worship. Bow down. Bow down. <clears throat> Is that what the NIV says, Pete? Worship? It's the uh, New King James. New King James says worship. Okay. <clears throat> All right, what else do you find in verse 5? Any other duplicate? Swear and swear. And swear, yes. <clears throat> so bow down or worship and swear are duplicated. <clears throat> So we actually have two duplicates in verse 4, two duplicates in verse 5. He's on a roll. What about verse 6? Pardon? The Lord. the Lord is duplicated. Turn back and not seek. There is a duplicate in a word that you read. No, it's the word not. Now, you may be surprised when I say the word not is duplicated. However, it is duplicated in the Hebrew. So the Hebrew original has a very interesting construction. The word for Lord or Yahweh is followed by a negative. And it is followed by a negative twice. So you have Lord plus the negative not once. And you have Lord plus the negative not twice. 
which once again reinforces the duplicate duplicates. Zephaniah has doubled his uh, duplicates in verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. He has two sets of duplicates in each of those three verses. Now, I want to come back to that uh, negative construction in verse uh, 6 a little later on, because uh, though you can't see it in your English translation, nonetheless, it is in the Hebrew original. Now, we ask a question about the sequence here in verses 4 to 6. Is this a downward spiral? Now, to answer that question, we want to, uh, we want to scan <clears throat> or evaluate the text of verse 4, 5, and 6. So, as we look at verse 4, we see no what name. Okay? You got it on verse 6. What did you see in verse 6? Okay, what do you see in verse 4? But no, no Lord. Yes, there's no Yahweh. There's no Lord in verse 4. But there is something else in verse 4. Another name. Judah? Baal. Baal. Yes, so no Lord, but all Baal. All right, what about verse 5? Okay. <clears throat> what else? Looking for proper names. Milcom is one. The Lord is there. Okay, so Lord or Yahweh in verse 5, that would be your blank and Milcom. But in verse 6, keep in mind what I said about the duplicates. In the section just above this, what do we have in verse 6? Notice I've got two blanks there. Marge? The Lord and the Lord. Lord and Lord, but then that's only two blanks. I've got four blanks. Oh, it's not okay. okay, keep in mind what I told you about the duplicates in verse 6. The order, the order of the Hebrew is... Lord plus not. Lord plus not. Very interesting. Very interesting the way he arranges the negative in that last section, in that sixth verse. All right, now, with respect to the question of a downward spiral, the equal sign is asking the question, what does this indicate in verse 4? Verse 4, with the absence of God and the presence of Baal, means overt idolatry. No Lord in the picture. No Yahweh in the picture. No God of Israel in the picture. God of the Canaanites. Baal. What do we have in verse 5? Is it overt idolatry? 
How did we fill in our blanks? The blank in verse 5 was what name? Lord and Milcom. So what do we have there? Is that overt idolatry? What do we call that? Marge? Where you're worshiping the Lord and an idol. Syncretism. Yes, we have syncretism. So we've progressed, so to speak. Have we progressed? Well, we'll raise that question in a moment. We're moving from overt idolatry, no Lord in the picture at all, Baal exclusively, to the Lord plus some other pagan deity, a syncretistic type of worship or idolatry. And what do we have in verse 6? What were our blanks? How did we fill in our blanks? Lord plus not, Lord plus not, twice. Yes, yes, twice. Lord not, Lord not. What have we got now? Not idolatry, not syncretism. We've got atheism. We've got explicit overt apostasy. No God at all. Lord not, Lord not. See how he underscores it. All right, so... Do we have a progression here? Well, we could look at it a progression in terms of numeric. How many times does the name Lord occur in verse 4? Zero. How many times does it occur in verse 5? Once. How many times does it occur in verse 6? Two. So we could say it's a progression, right? Zero to one to two in terms of the name of the Lord. Is that the kind of progression you think is complementary? Or is it, in fact, not a progression at all? It's a degression. It's a degression. All right, so the Lord denied by what in verse 4? What's the sin, Terry? Idolatry. The Lord denied by idolatry. No Lord in verse 4. The idol Baal in verse 4. Lord denied by what in verse 5? What did we say that was? In other words, the equal sign up above in the section above, you should have written in what there? Syncretism. The Lord denied by syncretism. In other words, the Lord combined with idols. Or the Lord worshipped under the name of idols. Or Yahweh, Jehovah, put on the same equal footing with idols. This is probably what was going on with the golden calf after the Exodus. Children of Israel didn't think that God looked like a bull, but they worshipped God, that is, the God of Israel, the God of the fathers. They worshipped God under the image of a bull. The bull's image was to remind them of God's power or strength. And so the suggestion is frequently made that Israel was practicing a kind of syncretism, thinking that they could hold on to Jehovah and worship him as a bull portrayed or engraven or manufactured in order to represent his mighty power. 
All right. <clears throat> Coming then to verse 6, the Lord is denied by what? Atheism or apostasy or indifference, all of the above. And notice that the Lord in verse 6 is negated twice over. Lord plus not, Lord plus not is an emphatic Hebrew construction. It's an emphatic negation. It means that this is the lowest level of the denial of God the repudiation of him, even if you once acknowledged him, that's apostasy, or the, the denial that he is even worthy of inquiring. In other words, he does not even exist. Crash atheism. We therefore do not have a progression except in a progression of degeneration. We've got a degression here. It's the same pattern we noticed in verses 2 to 3. So once again... Idolatry is a degressive pattern. It's a degenerative pattern. It ends up in its worst form in absolute negation of any god. For in fact, atheism is an idol in its own way. No, it doesn't have a graven image. It doesn't bow down before pictures. It doesn't make genuflections in front of statues of saints or the Virgin Mary or anything like that. The idolatry of the Roman Catholic Church... <clears throat> But it still has an idol. It still bows before its own rejection of the living God. It makes an idol of its philosophy. It makes an idol of its activism. It makes an idol of its sophistication. It makes an idol of its enlightenment, so-called enlightenment. It makes an idol of its elitism. Any questions so far? All right, now, next thing we're going to look at is the direct object. Now, last week you learned the Hebrew sign of the direct object. Since you all have total recall, I know you'll all be able to tell me what that is. That's a little Hebrew word, S-E-T-H. Now, a direct object is that uh, object of the verb, which is the focus of the question, who or what. So God says in verse 4, I will cut off. What's the direct object? The first direct object is what? What is he going to cut off? And the first thing he says in that verse is what? It's on your sheet. The remnant of Baal. What? Is he going to cut off direct object of the verb? You're going to cut off the remnant of Baal. Okay, what else is he going to cut off in verse 4? The names of the priest. Who? Okay, this is not the what, Baal. This is the who, the names of the priests. Verse 5, and the fill in the blank, it's E-T-H all the way down. <clears throat> we have six signs of the direct object in this uh, section. Each verse has two signs of the direct object in the Hebrew text. He will cut off, verse 5, those who bow down to the host of heaven, direct object. He will cut off those who bow down and swear, direct object. 
He will cut off those who turn from the Lord, direct object. He will cut off those who have not sought the Lord, direct object. Notice the pattern that we are uh, laying out. The paradigm of duplication. Paradigm of using doubles, doublets, replication. Zephaniah's literary rhetoric, Zephaniah's artistry here, is to use the Semitic paradigm of emphasis. And the way a Semite emphasizes something is he repeats words. He repeats constructions. So in every level of what we've examined so far this evening, we are observing Zephaniah's literary and rhetorical skill. Keep in mind that the Hebrews, when they heard this, heard it read. They didn't necessarily read it themselves, and in hearing it read, they would pick up on the pattern of duplication. Their ears were trained to listen for repetition, and repetition meant to them <clears throat> emphasis, underscoring, the emphatic declaration of the word of God. Here, the emphasis directed against the perverse sin of idolatry. Now, that's the easy part. Verses 4 to 6 have some very, very challenging parts, one of which we've already encountered in Randy's inferior translation of the Hebrew text. Sorry to pick on you, Randy, but uh, you use the RSV, and it's already an inferior translation anyway, so... Now that, we've, now that we've settled that matter with a harmonious agreement, on to the challenging questions. The challenges here deal with the translation of some very difficult Hebrew circumstances and some difficult Hebrew words. So let's begin with the first issue that arises from verse 4 and the question. Is Zephaniah writing, is he speaking these words before or after 621 B.C.? Now, why do we say 621 B.C.? Why do we put that date into the challenge, the challenging question of this particular verse? That's when the king started his uh, reform. Okay, this is whose reform? Josiah's reform, and what did that reform do? Go ahead, Kay, you're doing very well. Well, they uncovered the book of the law. They found the book of the law. Whose book was that? Or what book was that? The book of Moses. The book of Moses. Uh, yes, it, it's, it's conservative opinion that that scroll was the scroll of the Pentateuch, all five books of Moses. The liberal opinion is it's the book of Deuteronomy. You want to say more, Kay? Okay. Now, what else was he doing in this reform? He found the book of the law of Moses. And what did he do with the book of the law of Moses when he found it? He read it publicly. Yes, he read it publicly to the whole nation, to everybody gathered there at the temple in Jerusalem. All right. Now, having read it, what did he then do? He tore down the pagan altars. He cleansed them. Where were some of these pagan altars? Inside the temple, yes. Can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine having a statue of the Virgin Mary propped right up here on the podium on Sunday morning and walk in here? Huh? Can you imagine that? Absolutely, absolutely horrible. See, you, you, you would immediately recoil at such a thing. Well, what, why have we got statues of Baal and, a, and a, an Asherah poles and everything else right inside the, the uh, holy place of God? Not the holy of holies, but the holy place of God. We're in the court of the temple. How could that, how, how could that compute? How does it go together? Well, it goes together with a mindset that that justifies graven images, statues, uh, and portraits, etc., as aids to worship. Only it's not just aids to worship here. It's actually substitute gods. All right, so uh, this reform of Josiah cleans out the idols in the temple. And then he goes on a crusade. He cleans out the idols from the high places. And he goes through Judah and he cleans out the idols. He even goes up into Samaria and he cleans out the idols. He goes on a crusade and cleanses the land of the idols. So what about this phrase, remnant of Baal, in verse 4? How does that fit into what Josiah had done? Must be folks still sneaking around. <laughs> There's still some snitches around holding on to Baal. That is possible, is it not? In other words, the remnant of Baal refers to a underground pagan church, underground pagan assembly. That is a possibility, so that after 621, okay, the remnant of Baal, which was left over from these diehards who wouldn't give up their idolatry, wouldn't give up their fertility rights, wouldn't give up their sacred prostitution, wouldn't give up their use of sacred prostitutes, that's what Baal worship is, it's pornography, it's sacred prostitution, male and female alike. They're not going to give it up any more than moderns can give up pornography. They're addicted to it. Okay, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to break that. All right, now, that remnant of Baal could refer to what was left still in the land of Judah and Jerusalem as underground movement. That is possible. All right, now, let's look at the longer historical uh, picture. We've talked about this already, but let's remind ourselves by looking at the text, beginning with 2 Kings 21, verse 3. We want to know who is in, vo- in view in this chapter, and then we want to uh, ask the question, what is going on? And then we want to look at uh, how long it went on. So let's begin with reading verse 3 of first, 2 Kings 21. And anyone who has it, just go ahead and read it out. He rebuilt Who's the he? Manasseh. Manasseh, very good. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected the altar 
Baal, look at that. Go ahead. And made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. Okay, the starry host or the host of heaven, Robert already mentioned that from verse 5 of uh, Zephaniah chapter uh, 1. So, we've got elements here in Zephaniah that are also present in Manasseh's uh, worship of of idols. All right, now, what about Manasseh? Does he die an idolater? When does he die? He repented before he died. Do we find that story in 2 Kings? The story is not in 2 Kings. Where is it? It is in Chronicles. Chronicles tells us about the repentance of Manasseh after the Assyrians deported him to Babylon, interestingly enough. All right, so Manasseh did repent, and when he repented, what did he do? What fruits of repentance did he show according to the book of Chronicles? Second Chronicles 33. What fruits of repentance did he show? Well, you don't have to turn to the passage because you can take a look at 2 Kings 21 verse 3 if you still have your finger there and just reverse it. What did he do, Kay? He removed the bales. He tore down the Asherah poles. <laughs> and he stopped worshiping the heart. He stopped the worship of the starry host or the host of heaven. <clears throat> now, where did they worship the starry host or the host of heaven? Look at verse 5 of Zephaniah 1 if you still have your finger there. Rooftop. On their rooftops. Why did they worship the starry host on their rooftops? What kind of roofs did they have? Did they have gable roofs? I get up on my roof every once in a while. My wife has a fit. They are flat. Yes, flat roofs. But why did they worship the host of heaven on their flat rooftops? Two reasons. Mark, they could see the starry host, particularly when it was, when it was clear. That's obvious, okay. But why else? They're closer, exactly. They thought they were closer to the gods that they were worshiping, right. So they're not only out in wide open spaces and could see them, but they believed that being elevated, being high up. See, this is the reason they have the ziggurats in Babylon and Assyria. Those huge temple towers that go up, you know, hundreds of stairs, you know, getting up high in the sky. Tower of Babel, getting high in the sky, to get closer to the gods. Okay. The Space Needle. I won't touch that one. All right. All right. So, Manasseh does institute Baal worship, support it, but he removes it. So, there is a reversal in Manasseh's career of having been attached to pagan idolatry and then repenting and removing it. In other words, a revival 
of the worship of the Lord at the end of his career. Randy? How did he do that from Babylon? Well, he went back. If you read the story in Second Chronicles of his repentance, then when he repented, he cried out to God when he was in, when he was in exile, okay? perhaps even under arrest and in, in some kind of prison. And the Lord heard his cry, and he repented, and the Lord restored him. And he went back to Jerusalem, and he uh, purged the idols uh, from that city and other places. Now, it's conceivable that one could have said, since he dies in what year? Anybody remember? He dies in 642 because his son Ammon takes his place in 642. So he dies in 642, and it's conceivably close to Zephaniah's era, okay? Is it conceivable that Zephaniah, referring to the remnant of Baal, is referring to what was still underground when Manasseh died? That's a possibility except for the fact that when you look at Zephaniah 1.1, he says that he is active in the days of whom? Josiah, Josiah. So it's not likely that the reference to the remnant of Baal predates 642 B.C. That is, the death of Manasseh. It is likely that it follows, it comes after 642. All right, well, what about the reign of his son Ammon, which is described in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 21? Now, you may still have your finger in that chapter, so if so, if you have verse 21, go ahead and read it out. Who's he? This is Ammon, very good. In all the way that his father had walked and served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. All right, now notice that it doesn't give any particular names, but... When it says that he worshipped the idols that his father had served and worshipped, we go back to verse 3 of this 21st chapter, and we can fill in the names. And the names would include Baal and the Asherim. So, Ammon, the reason I put implied on your uh, outline, Ammon, by implication, is restoring the worship or, or worshiping the uh, gods that his father had worshipped before his repentance and conversion. All right, now, Ammon dies when? In what year? Which would be the year that Josiah becomes king. 640. He only reigns for two years. So that brings us to Josiah's reign in 2 Kings chapter 23, Verses 4 and 5. Now, Kay has already alluded to this, but let's read the text. So, someone has verses 4 and 5 of 2 Kings 23. Please read it out. Maybe we should let Kay read it out. Would you like to do that, Kay? Which one? Verses 4 and 5 of 2 Kings 23. This is your story, so we'll, we'll let you read it. Verse 4 and 5. What king is this? This, this? this is Josiah. 
high priest and priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, oh my, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the field of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Where are the fields of the Kidron? Where's the Kidron? Outside Jerusalem. What side? East. East side of Jerusalem. Very good. Jesus crosses over the brook Kidron on his way to uh, the Mount of Olives. All right, verse 5. And he did away with the idolatrous priests. Mm, notice that phrase, idolatrous priests. Okay, go ahead. Whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, and to the moon, and to the constellations, and to all the hosts of heaven. Thank you very much. All right, now notice, Josiah purges these things away. And this uh, text is dated to 621 when he uh, performs this reformation and purges the temple and reads the book of the law of God. Which means that this phrase, remnant of Baal, could, uh, <clears throat> could occur, could be referring to uh, people who are left over as devotees of the Baal cult between the death of Ammon and the reformation of Josiah in 621. It is also possible that it could refer to persons who were still diehards after 621. But what would be the terminus ad quem of Zephaniah's comments? In other words, when would we not have him referring to the remnant of Baal? And the answer comes from Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 13. And what does that verse say? Read it out, anyone that's got it. Zephaniah 2.13. I'm not reading mine anymore. And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation, as dry as the wilderness. What is the date of that fulfillment? Gary, what's the date of that fulfillment? Art? What's the date? Okay. 612. 612 B.C. Okay, so why do we say terminus ad quem? And you're welcome to read your version anytime. But we're welcome to criticize it every time. What's, what's terminus ad quem here mean? It means the point beyond which we know Zephaniah is not predicting, is not prophesying. So. Sometime between 621 or 640, for that matter, and 612 B.C., Zephaniah refers to this remnant of Baal. This argument continues to brew amongst the scholars, liberal and conservative alike, as to whether we can narrow the dating of Zephaniah's prophecy more precisely to 621, 615, 632, 
or not. And I am of the mind that we can't settle it, at least not on the basis of the data we have so far. But we do know this, that whatever this remnant of Baal was, Zephaniah is not referring to it beyond the year 612. But Jeremiah does. And that's the reason I put Jeremiah on the list of passages opposite Josiah, because in the days of the prophet Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Nahum, in his days, Baal is being worshipped in Jerusalem and Judah again, particularly during the reign of King Jehoiakim and King Zedekiah. So, we know that the idolatry was not completely exterminated any more than pornography is completely exterminated. As many rings as we break up, as much as we try to clean it up, as much as we try to keep people from seeing it on the Internet, etc., etc., we still cannot uh, bar people from access to it or from involvement in it. It is a particularly seductive uh, perversity, and it has its own force and power. Same way with idolatry, and particularly idolatry combined with the worship of sexuality. It has a tremendously powerful attraction and seduction. It's a form of bondage, form of slavery. It's a form of enslavement, self-enslavement to a system which is destructive of your uh, humanity, destructive of your dignity, destructive of your sexuality, destructive of your being and made in a man or woman in the image of God. All right, so we cannot settle this issue of a more precise date for Zephaniah's prophecy than, broadly speaking, the reign of Josiah from 640 to 612. He would live only three years longer. He died 609 at Megiddo. And we, we cannot do so simply because we don't have enough information from within the Bible or from outside the Bible to, uh, to settle the question, at least not in the, at this point in the opinion of the majority of uh, scholars who have worked over this book. Any questions about that? Yes, Scott. Because he restores the worship of God and he removes the Baal worship. Now, I don't deny that there could be an underground uh, element there that still carries on. Uh, But the fact that he has a revival of the worship of the Lord suggests that that places in, in fairly strong suppression the worship of the idols. Ammon doesn't have a purging routine, okay? So I'm arguing that we're going to look at somebody who actually tried to remove something and there was a remnant left over. That would be true of Manasseh. There might be a remnant left over, but it's not true of Ammon because there's no revival. There's no restoration of the worship of God in Ammon's reign. His, His reign is described as he did evil in the sight of the Lord period. Josiah 
restores the worship of God and purges the idols. Ammon does not purge any idols out of Judah and Jerusalem. So there I'm using, there I'm using the word remnant to mean something that has been left over after an attempt to remove it. Because of the dating of the book, the first verse places Zephaniah in Josiah's reign. Not in Manasseh's reign, not at the end of Manasseh's reign, not in Ammon's reign, even though he names uh, Josiah the son of Ammon. Okay? All right. Um, Now, we want to address what Randy's version did not translate. And that is the distinction between Kemarim and Kohanim. But we'll do that after you've fortified yourself with refreshments. Now, our second challenge also arises from verse 4 and comes from the two Hebrew terms, Kemarim and Kohanim. You'll notice as I pronounce them that there was an alliteration there, that is the initial hard K sound, and there's also an assonantial uh, resonance there. Kemarim, Kohanim. They both end with the same I am uh, a vocalization. Now, Kemarim is the word which is translated in the English version, idolatrous priests. We want to take a look at that word as it appears in the rest of the Old Testament. So, Kay had read 2 Kings 23.5 for us, and you remember I said remember that, And what did I say, remember? Do you remember, Kay, what I said, remember? (laughs) The idolatrous priests in verse 5 of that passage is kemarim, the very same word that Zephaniah uses here, translated by the New American Standard, idolatrous priest. At least one other place in the Old Testament. In other words, this word, which is unusual and rare, occurs only three times in the Hebrew Bible. And the third time is in Hosea chapter 10, verse 5. So if you'll turn to that passage, whoever has that verse, please read it out when you get to it. Hosea 10, verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. Indeed, the people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous Idolatrous priest in Hosea 10.5 is also Kemarim. All right, in the three places where this term occurs, it is consistently translated by the phrase idolatrous priests. Now, that is uh, in order to distinguish it from Kohanim. Now, that's the reason verse 4 must be translated with priest duplicated. 
cannot be placed in a margin or at the footnote because the Hebrew text is quite clear. Kemarim, idolatrous priest, Kohanim, priests of some kind. What kind? What does the word Kohan mean in Hebrew? Scott? It means priest, okay? But it is the usual name for the Levitical priest. Yes, Kohen or Kohan, okay? All right. Zephaniah is therefore distinguishing two types of priests. He is using a very rare word, to label the idolatrous priests, that is, the priests of Baal, the priests who may be serving those on the rooftops who are adoring the host of heaven, the priests of the Asherim. Those are idolatrous priests. But he also uses this word, the usual term, for the Levitical priests, that is, the priests who normally worship or minister at the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament. That complicates, then, the way to translate this verse. So I've suggested a couple of ways of translating it paraphrastically, which draws out the contrast and the meaning. And I've done this in such a way as to take a subsequent point in the rhetoric or in the expansion, this digression of idolatry, which Zephaniah is outlining here. I've done it in such a way as to make a specific point, which I'm suggesting is the point that Zephaniah is making. All right, I've suggested, first of all, that we could translate this line, this phrase, from the Hebrew, those or these pagan, meaning idolatrous priests, who bow down to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom, are with or among the Levitical priests. All right, now you'll notice that I actually used a phrase from verse 5 to expand upon the idolatrous priestly activity. And I did that in order to tie together the idolatrous syncretism, which is present in that first, first ver- fifth verse, rather, a pattern that we outlined when we were looking at the digression of this section 4 to 6. So I'm suggesting that... This use of two kinds of priest, uh, priesthoods, or two castes of priests, is Zephaniah's way of labeling the syncretistic Levitical priests who were content to worship among or to minister alongside of the idolatrous priests who were serving either in the temple or in other areas of Judah and Jerusalem. Another way that we could paraphrase or translate this, uh, set, this phrase in verse 4 is to read it uh, as I placed 
in the second option, these Levitical priests have among them or have with them pagan idolatrous priests who bow down to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom. My point is to provide a suggestion, which is a solution for the combination of two orders of priests in that fourth verse. A rare word, which is used to identify the pagan priests, but itself anticipates the not only worshipers of Baal in the fourth verse, but anticipates those that worship Milcom and the Lord at the same time through a priestly intercessor, through a priestly caste, through a priestly cult. Get the picture then. Zephaniah is saying that in the temple where they had images of Baal and the idolatrous pagan priests were bowing down to Baal and to Astarte and promoting that sacred prostitution. At the same time, there were Levitical priests alongside of them, worshiping the Lord. And those Levitical priests did not object to the syncretistic or side-by-side worship, the worship of the idolatrous priests among them. In other words, they said, we can coexist. We can tolerate. We can have this multicultural ecumenical worship service in the temple. You get the point. You get the picture. Okay, That's my suggestion as to why he uses these two terms, one of which is extremely rare in the Old Testament, the other which is common and frequent. It is the usual word for a Hebrew priest. All right, now, our challenges aren't over. And incidentally, uh, this uh, Kemarim, Kohanim issue is also hotly debated. Commentators, liberal and conservative alike, go round and round and round as to why he's using this this combination. All right, well, our challenges aren't over, as I said. The next challenge is this word milkom. Now, this one, uh, we have to do our sword drill. We have to turn back to 1 Kings 11, verse 5, and begin there. So, let's all go back to 1 Kings chapter 11, because we're going to spend several moments in looking at three verses in this chapter. This is a chapter which comes from the reign of King Solomon. And we'll begin with verse 5. 1 Kings 11, verse 5. Please read it out, someone who has it. He followed Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth. Sorry, the goddess of Sidians and Motep, or Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Okay, now, uh, the version that uh, Cheryl read has Moloch for Milcom. Now, uh, that is not what the Hebrew text says. Okay, So that's an inferior translation. Once again, it's an incorrect translation. The Hebrew text has Milcom there in verse 5. All right? Now, verse 7. Read it out, anyone. And Solomon built a high place for Shemosh. Chemosh. Hard, hard C-H, like a K. Abomination of Moab, and for 
from Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. And the other one earlier says Milcom. Okay, and what does it say in verse 7? The M God? Molech. Molech. Okay, so verse 7 says Molech or Moloch. Okay, so in verse 5, we've got Milcom. The Hebrew text says Milcom. In verse 7, we've got Molech. What do we have in verse 33? Read it out, please. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and observing my statutes and my ordinances, as his father David did. Now there, Milcom is called... The God of the sons of Ammon. Notice that in verse 7, Moloch is called the detestable God of the Ammonites. So this Ammonite name is in all three of those verses. The God of the Ammonites. Called in verse 5 in the Hebrew text, Milcom. Called in verse uh, verse 7, Moloch. Called in verse 33, Milcom once again. So who is Milcom? Milcom equals Moloch, the god of the Ammonites. That brings us to Zephaniah. We now know from 1 Kings 11 that Milcom and Moloch are identical. But verse 5 of Zephaniah does not read Milcom. Notice your margin, those of you that have New American Standard. It actually reads Malcom. Malcom. M-A-L-C-A-M. That throws a monkey wrench into the identification, at least potentially. Now, you'll notice that the text of the New American Standard has Milcom. But in the margin, it says probably a variant of Milcom, quote unquote. Probably. This is the only place in the Old Testament where the Hebrew vowels are pointed A, Malcom. Not I and O, Milcom. That presents a problem. Did the Masoretes make a mistake? Did they not point it consistently? Or did they know something we don't know? And there is somebody else in view here. Well, then, if it's Malcolm, if it's M-A-L-C-A-M, not M-I-L-C-O-M, if that's what it is, truly, who is this Malcolm? Who is he? The liberals who accept this reading, that is, as legitimate, and the pointing as consistent, the liberals argue that this means their king. It comes from the Hebrew word melech, which means king, and with the ending am, preposition, plural preposition, possessive, their king. Now, that is a possibility. That is a possibility. I don't deny it. But the fact that the only other place 
where we have these uh, three consonants, MLK, in uh, a, a, a context of pagan worship, and the majority of those consonants are pointed I and O, these meet to suspect that the pointing of the Masoretes is not accurate here in Zephaniah 1.5. Now, that is a very uh, temporary suggestion. That's a very cautious suggestion. Denison is no great Hebrew scholar. He relies on others to uh, point the way for him. <clears throat> Nonetheless, this is a this is a crooks. This is a this is a tough spot. Now you say, what difference does it make? It's an idol of some kind. Yeah, but it, you see, that doesn't satisfy the detective in me. I want to know what idol it is. Is it really Milcom? Is it really Moloch? Is that really who it is, or is it some? other god, or is it the deification of the king? That is, they are making their king a god. Those are two very different things, you understand. Randy? Could they be confused themselves, and that could be, was what caused them the confusion? That the pagans are confused? Yes, about who their god is. They, they, pagans they, aren't usually confused about their gods. you got to... You've got a whole pantheon of them on Mount Olympus. Yeah. They've all got individual names and they're all on individual jobs. The same thing with the gods of Egypt. Yeah, so you can get confused about them. Well, they're pretty easy, I know. I would Not when you're writing it down. <laughs> no, I don't think that's likely. So, we have here a name which evades a absolute certain identification. Nonetheless, as I pointed out, it is a pagan deity of some kind which is being worshipped syncretistically. That is, alongside of Milcom or Malcom is Yahweh, the Lord God Jehovah, Mary. It's expanding upon the uh, worshiping of the host of heaven. It's expanding upon a kind of idolatry. So is there a connection between host of heaven and the word? There's no astral deity known by that name. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not possible, but there's no known astral deity by that name. But that's a good thought. Moloch is definitely a statue. Okay? So Moloch and Milcom are graven images. They, in fact, burn their children alive in the arms of Moloch. They sacrifice their infants. Couldn't a statue represent a star then? Yes, a, a statue could represent a star, but once again, there's no known identification for an astral deity here. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying it hasn't been. It may not have been discovered yet. That, that's that's possible. But a good bit of Babylonian and Assyrian astral worship, Canaanite astral worship, a good bit of it has been uncovered with archaeological texts and archaeological figurines. Nothing that matches this. 
to my knowledge. Yes, Scott. Is it possible since you know, this point of time for the our king, uh, is it possible that we're not talking about them worshiping their physical king, but a god that they call their king? Instead of worshiping the Lord, they worship their king. That, that, that is possible, yes. You see the range of possibilities. What appears to be a personal name may also be kind of a generic title. All right, we leave it unresolved, but with, you know, fertile discussion of the possibilities. Yes, you're not ready to leave it? No, a little different, the the mountain east of Jerusalem in Kings 33, is that the Mount of Olives or possibly the Mount of Olives? What what are you referring to there? 1 Kings 33 at the end of... 1 Kings 11, 33? 7, verse 7, the end of verse 7. Oh, at the end of verse 7. Mountains east of Jerusalem. Yes, it could be the Mount of Olives. No, that's that's the high point east of Jerusalem. It's 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 not really a mountain; it's a hillside. But they they call it a a har. They call it a mountain. They call two thousand foot rolling hills mountains. All right, now one one uh, small note before we leave uh, this uh, section, and that's on the verb in verse four. I will stretch out my hand. The verb stretch out. This is the same Hebrew verb by which God commands Moses to stretch out his rod against the land of Egypt so as to bring down the plague of God's judgment and destruction upon hard-hearted Pharaoh for oppressing the children of Israel. Stretch out your rod against the land. Stretch out your rod against the host of Pharaoh. Stretch out, Moses. But you'll notice that Zephaniah here declares that the Lord God is going to stretch out against the enemies of his enslaved sons and daughters in reverse fashion. In reverse fashion. What had been stretched out against Egypt is going to be turned on those who were once set free by it. And because of their great wickedness, those against whom God will stretch out his arm or his hand in Zephaniah 1.4 will be returned to bondage. They will be returned to oppression. They will be returned to death and destruction by the Babylonians. The Exodus deliverance by God's mighty and stretched out arm, will be reversed. It will be undone. Israel will return to bondage 
by and through the outstretched arm of the Lord. He will stretch out his arm of darkness against Judah, even as he stretched out his arm against Egypt with darkness. Stretched out his arm against Egypt with darkness, even darkness which might be felt. You ever been in the Carlsbad Caverns? You ever been deep in that about a thousand feet down cavern and they turn out the lights on you and you can't see anything but blackness? And they tell everybody to be quiet. And they tell you to be quiet when they turn out the lights so that you can feel the darkness. You can almost feel the weight of it. The plague of darkness upon Egypt was darkness which might be felt. As with the downward spiral of mankind in general, Zephaniah 1, 2 to 3, the spiral of wickedness, down, down, down into darkness as that which lay upon the face of the deep in Genesis 1, 2. So the downward spiral of Judah and Jerusalem, Zephaniah 1, 4 to 6, in particular is a gyrating descent into the darkness of Baalism, syncretism, atheism, a paradigmatic symmetry of the universal and the particular, the cosmic and the nationalistic, the comprehensive and the selective. We have a holistic paradigm here in verses 2 to 6 of the extensive character, nature, and insidious insinuation of idolatry. The love of darkness instead of light. The love of bondage instead of liberty. The love of sin instead of salvation. The love of power. Brute power. Brute power and aggression instead of freedom and peace. The love of deceit. Delight in the lie. Delight in the lie instead of the truth. The embrace of treachery. Base, crass treachery instead of integrity. The love of enemies instead of friends. The delight in fellowshipping, fraternizing, and table with enemies instead of friends. The wimpish, mealy-mouthed pseudo-oratory of weakness instead of a firm, stolid strength, all of which leads to utter contempt, utter 
contempt. All these idols, these idols of wickedness, idols of evil, all these idols and the black void of the soul, the soul without God, the soul without Christ, the soul without the spirit, the spirit of light and life and immortality. All these, these idols will be consigned to the darkness, the eternal darkness, the eternal night in which there is no light. All these, these idols, will be removed. God will cut them off. They will be destroyed by God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be no idolatry when he comes to annihilate this earth. It will be utterly reduced to nothingness and darkness eternal. Jesus Christ, in whom there is no darkness. Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Jesus Christ, who dwells in unapproachable light. The light of glory, the glory light, which he had with the Father and the Spirit from before the world was made and there was darkness over the face of the deep. In him, in Christ Jesus, no idolatry. No. He will not stand it. He is jealous of the love of his people and their absolute soul devotion to him and not to statues of images, saints, or priests. They cannot coexist. You shall not bow down to a graven image. In him, Christ Jesus, no syncretism. You cannot combine Buddhism with Christianity. You cannot unite Mormonism with Christianity. You cannot combine that which is oil and water. They don't mix. God alone and no clouding of his worship with other idol forms. In him, in Christ Jesus, no apostasy, no indifference. How can you be indifferent to the Son of God 
laid down his life for your life, who gave himself unto death for your death, who was raised for your justification and salvation. Indifferent to that? Care less about that? No. Impossible. A heart full of love for the Lord Jesus. He is the light of life. Life now and life forevermore. Him we love. Christ Jesus we love. Together with the Father and the Spirit. They, them we love. For they are eternal. All idols are dust and ashes. Any questions or comments? Understand the genius of what Zephaniah is doing here. This is a paradigm. A paradigm of idolatry broadly conceived, verses 2 and 3, and narrowly focused, verses 4 to 6, on the people of God of the days of Josiah. Yes, David. I'm trying to understand the mindset. The Jews descended into, uh, as I learned it, that only they, they thought that only they could be saved, and that a Gentile wanted to be saved, and a Gentile actually become a Jew. And so this God, Yahweh, that separated them out and gave them uniqueness, I don't see how they get over the cabin to worshiping a pagan God. Well, idolatry is a mystery to anyone devoted to the Lord God and to his Son, our Savior. Uh, it's a mystery because the attraction doesn't seem to be present, but there's a whole worldwide denomination that practices it and practices it every, every day of the week. How is it compatible? How can it be justified? Any Christian denomination that has the Ten Commandments in its own Jerusalem Bible. The accommodation of the, the notion of an aid to devotion, an aid to worship. It's the beginning of a syncretistic trail. It's the same with Israel. If it was syncretism at, at uh, Mount Sinai in the Golden Calf, then it's one step to Baal Peor, which of course is the next step they take. And there, it, of course, is the tantalizing, uh, titillating seduction of sexual idolatry that involves sexual practice. That hasn't disappeared. Hugh Hefner is the high priest of modern uh, uh, worship of sex. He may be being dislodged because he isn't long for this world, but nonetheless. Randy. Uh, in, in 
refer to his question, friendship with the world is enmity with God. I mean, if you don't usually just worship that image just because of the image, it's the people. You, in order to be associated with the people, get along with those people, and not have problems, you bow before what they bow before to a certain extent, I guess. Yes, you're right. There are social conventions involved in the worship of images and the worship of, of statues. <clears throat> I, uh, I agree with that. But when you're looking at the psychology of the attraction, you wonder what it is that causes them to think. Peg, a rank, crass pagan idolatry thinks they're getting something for it. You see, they give the gods something, the gods going to give them something. That's the only way they can get the blessing of the gods. They have to give him something. They have to do something for the god. So they feed them. See, they leave food and uh, and drink at their altars. They perform sacrifices because they have to eat meat. Mary? Idolatry began with the tree in the garden, and Romans really nailed that. They said, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Yes, it is. When we stand back as those that love the Lord God in sincerity and worship him in spirit and truth, it's an absolute mystery as to any, why anyone would be tempted with it. Nonetheless, the temptation is there. And it appeals to, well, to people that want something tangible. The invisible God is intangible. He became tangible in his son, Jesus Christ. We should be content with that tangibility. But nonetheless, that is not enough. Certainly not enough for Rome because Rome wants to add other concrete tangibilities, including the justification by works of penance. But it is darkness. It is a form of spiritual darkness. And anyone who has come out of Rome, like Martin Luther and millions of others, anyone who's come out of it, realizes that they've come into the light of the kingdom of heaven. And that, of course, is our invitation to all Roman Catholics to come out of the darkness into the marvelous light of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. He should be enough for you. You don't need any other crutches, statuary supports, pictures on the walls, bloody crucifixes. You do not need them. They are unnecessary when Christ is all in all to you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will fortify us against the spirit of idolatry, even mental and verbal idolatries, even the idolatry of power, the idolatry of influence, status, and position. We pray, O oh Lord, that you also remind us that idolatry is present in our culture and that you will cause us to be delivered from that evil through Christ, whom we love in sincerity, by the love of God the Father who sent him, by the power of the indwelling spirit who draws us daily unto the Lord Jesus, the light of the world, and takes us out of darkness into eternal life, and eternal light. We bless you for that wonderful benediction. We bless you 
for that wonderful and marvelous salvation. We bless you for that marvelous son of your love by the Spirit, our Redeemer and our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.